0: It's that time of the week, right after 5 o'clock on Friday. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Time for Ask the Preacher. Ask the Preacher with John Free. brought to you by Believer's Fellowship Church of North Lakeland. God had mercy on me, on me. God had mercy on me. Ask the Preacher with John Free. John's out today, but sitting in for him is George Locke. Yip, 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 yippee! It is Friday. It is good to be back in studio with all you beautiful people. Uh, I want to remind you of the phone number to call in and get your questions answered. You can go to askthepreacher.com, you can submit your answers there, or you can call in live right now at 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. And there's a lot of news going on today. Uh, there's, you know, the whole Russia invading Ukraine thing. And, you know, China wants to attack Taiwan and blah, blah, blah. Here's the good news. In Matthew 24, Jesus says that there's going to be wars and rumors of war, but do not be troubled. He says, do not be troubled. These things must happen, but the end is not yet. We have a commission. We are to be salt and we are to be light in the world, even in the midst of wars and rumors of wars. If you are setting your hope and your focus on Jesus, the Messiah, you can be a light to everybody around you, despite the calamities and the atrocities. And uh, I'll say one more thing about about the whole Ukraine-Russia thing. Uh, Just because we are not troubled doesn't mean that we act foolishly. And I think it's incredibly foolish to worry about the Ukrainian border when the United States southern border is being invaded by millions of people every single year. So uh, the wise thing would be to chill out about the Ukrainian border and focus on the U.S. southern border. But no matter what's going on, don't be troubled and make your focus Jesus. Just a reminder, the phone number to call in is 863-682-1430. You can go to askthepreacher.com. You can submit your questions there. And when you do, we'll do our best to answer your questions on the following uh, radio program the, the next week. And we have a question here. <clears throat> the question is, where did Cain get his wife, and what is your view on the pre-edemic race? That's a really good question. Two questions, actually. First of all, where did Cain—so, you know, Cain was the son of Adam and Eve. Where did he get his wife? Uh, That's a good question. And then the pre-edemic race we'll we'll tackle. So the the first question, Cain, and I'll bring everybody up to speed and kind of do a quick Bible review. God made Adam. God made Eve. Adam and Eve had two sons that are mentioned by name, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. Cain then says to God, "God, I I'm going to, you know, be slaughtered by anybody who finds me because of the sin I committed against my brother." God says, "No, no, no. Whoever finds you, I'm going to put a mark on you so that whoever finds you won't kill you." Then Cain goes, he gets married, he has a son, they build a city. But where do these people come from? If the Bible's only mentioning Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel and then later Seth and his genealogy, where, where did Cain get his wife? That's a good question. And uh, I think the second question that was asked, do you believe in a pre-edemic race? Let me explain what that is. So we're going to put a pause on the first question. Now we're going to explain the second question. Pre-edemic means it was prior to Adam being created. And there are basically two general schools of thought when it comes to the human race in biblical studies. There's what's called pre-edemic and co-edemic. Pre-edemic is... People were created prior to Adam and Eve. And co-edemic means people were created in conjunction at the same time as Adam and Eve. So I'm going to explain both of those fairly quickly, although we could probably do a, you know, 20-hour study on both. Uh, Most people will use Bible passages like uh, Jeremiah 23, where in Jeremiah 23 it talks about how the earth was, uh, the sky was darkened and all the mountains were upturned and birds flew away from the skies. And it's this real chaotic apocalyptic-type scenery that's described, and some people believe that that is a reference to an earth that existed prior to Adam and Eve. Um, They'll couple that with passages in 1 Peter, where he talks about the world that was and then was destroyed, and and it's an interesting theory. I don't think it holds much weight scholarly, but it's an interesting theory. So when it comes to a pre-Edemic race, where people created prior to Adam, I think the best thing to do is to look at the creation account itself. And when we look at the creation account, it says that uh, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And it's really interesting there because the person creating is God. And the Hebrew language is a really cool language. I, I think it's really neat to study. In Hebrew, generally speaking, there can be nouns that are both plural and singular. Uh, For example, the Hebrew word Elohim can mean a single God, or it can be the triune God, the the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what determines its singularity or plurality is the verb that's used. And let me give you an example in English. In English, we have a word deer, D-E-E-R. And I might be talking about one deer, or I could be talking about 50 deer, Uh, Same thing with fish, one fish or 50 fish. And what determines, if I'm talking about one or multiple, is the verb. The fish is swimming up the stream or the fish are swimming up the stream. The verb determines its tense, whether it's singular or plural. And so in the beginning, God is creating Adam. He's creating man. That term man could be singular or it could be plural. We don't really know based on the verb tense, because the verb is God who's creating. So we don't know if he's creating one man or multiple man, just like we could substitute the word fish. Is it one fish that he's creating or multiple fish? So we got to look a little further into the story. Next, we see that, okay, male and female, he created them. Well, that's not really helping us much, because again, it, it could be multiples, Uh, But then we see this next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, there's Adam and Eve, two specific singular people, and then there's this third entity, the Nakash. We talked about this a little bit last week, the shining one, this one who practices divination. He seduces, he beguiles Eve, and Eve, the singular female entity, she is presented with a judgment, and she has three judgments— But one of them, uh, her three judgments are that she would desire after her husband, she would want to be uh, basically the head of house, uh, most people believe that judgment is describing. She would um, have pain in childbirth, and her seed would be at war with the serpent's seed. And it's that second judgment, that she would have pain in childbirth, that's kind of interesting. Because it's not exegesic. Exegesic means it's directly described in Scripture. It's pulled directly out of the words. But it's suggestive. Now, whenever there's anything weird in the Bible, in my opinion, it's important. There's nothing in there by coincidence or by mistake. So if it's weird, it's probably important. And so when God is pronouncing judgment on Eve for violating God's law, for violating his commands, he mentions this kind of weird Almost, you can just read over it and excuse it, she'll have pain in childbirth, which suggests that she experienced childbirth without pain. It's a suggestion. And so I think it's plausible that where did Cain and Seth and, and you know, these men who were created and were born from Adam and Eve, where did they get their spouse? Well, it was probably their siblings. Uh, it's possible that Adam and Eve had other children that are not mentioned by name, and it's possible that some of those children were born prior to Adam and Eve uh, rebelling against God. So uh, when it comes to a pre-edemic race, there's a whole lot of plot holes and, and stories that fall through uh, when you talk about a pre-edemic race. Uh, so I, I think it's somewhat co-edemic. There were siblings born. Uh, they were children of Adam and Eve. And they, were, they were eventually grew up and Who knows how long it was between Adam and Eve being created and them rebelling. It could have been one year, could have been one month, could have been 10 years. We don't really know. But uh, it was probably their children who intermingled. This is Ask the Preacher. It's a call-in talk show where you can call in and have your questions answered. Our phone number to call in is 863-682-1430. You can also go to askthepreacher.com. We're going to go to a quick break, and we'll see you back here in just a little bit. But right now, let's get back to more of Ask the Preacher, your weekly opportunity to have your Bible questions answered. Brought to you by Believer's Fellowship Church. Welcome back from the break. Just a reminder, the phone number to call in and have your questions answered is 863-682-1430. We have a caller on the line now, Clyde. He's got a uh, third option he wants to bring on in in terms of a pre-edemic race. Clyde, what's your question?
1: Okay, now, all right, so we're talking about the creation accounts in scripture. Mm-hmm. All right? now, you know, it's like, you, you said there were two. There's that there was um, the pre edemic which means that Adam was created. They were there and then Adam was created. And then there's the co. There's also the strong belief by a lot of Christians uh, that Adam is not a literal person. And it is, in fact, an allegorical story.
0: Yeah, and, and that— um, Okay. So there's two, two things you can go there, if I can comment real quick. Uh, I was kind of mentioning mm-hmm. before that that the Hebrew language doesn't really allude to if it was a single person or multiple, kind of like fish. Are you talking about one fish or multiple fish? Yeah, but fish? I'm not, I'm not so, talking about whether so the guy— could was, be,
1: well, I'm saying it could it, be. I'm saying the story may general. be there. The story may be there just to teach us— something about what was happening, not necessarily as a literal history of an account.
0: Sure, that is one way people view it. I don't think it's a genuine view, and and here's just my opinion on it. There are four ways you can look at Scripture, generally speaking. It's a historical Mm -hmm. event, you know, really happened. You can look at it as prophetic. It's a cycle, or it's a foreshadow, or it's a prediction of Mm -hmm. something that's going to happen. Uh, it is a parable story that is just used for allegory. Um, and then ultimately, it all pertains to Jesus in some way or another. It all focuses on, on him uh, and how he is prophesied throughout it. In terms of the creation story specifically, is it literal history or is it an allegory? Uh, in my opinion, I don't think it's allegory, and here's why. Uh, if you say that Genesis is allegory, you can rule out everything in Genesis. And if you rule out uh, everything in Genesis as just merely a, an allegory or uh, something that is supposed to not be taken literally, just a good moral lesson, well, then you can rule out the other books of Moses as well, the Pentateuch, uh, which include the direct dictation from Yahweh on Mount Sinai. And so I, I mm. think from a... Biblical well, think, point of I view, this, it's it's important to let Scripture God. interpret itself. There are places in Scripture that you're right; it's allegory.
1: I, I, I think this is one of those areas where people that are that are very literalists, okay, that they want to look at everything in the Bible as a as literal, okay, really right. run into a problem. Yeah, I don't think you should look you're at everything literally. Is that it, if you do not if you do not accept these first two chapters in Genesis as mm-hmm. being a literal history, then you can then you can't accept anything else. That's just not true.
0: Well, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Second. Go go ahead. Let me L- give you a hear your point. point. Go for it.
1: Okay. All right, all, right, all right. So you're starting here in chapter two, right, verse four. All right. No. Yeah. Verse four. In the day that God the Lord made the earth and the heaven, mm-hmm. when no plant and fields. Was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain, Mm -hmm. okay, upon the earth. But a stream would run out, and then the Lord God formed man from the dust. So the first thing is made is man, right? But if you go back over here to Genesis, the first chapter, man's made on the sixth day.
0: Right. So what you're describing is the the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So and typically, so that these cannot be literal. Well, they can be. One is a one is a, if you'll call it a timeline. It is an overview of all of the creation events, and then one is a specific section in that time. It's kind of like if I told you a story of my uh, week, and I would give you all the lists of, of every day of the week. That happened to me, and then I focus in on mm-hmm. on Wednesday specifically. And here's what happened on Wednesday specifically. Yeah, but
1: that's specifically. not what's going on here. So you're going to argue that, you, that you're going to argue, you can hey, have, brother, you're going to argue that number two is focusing on what happened on the sixth day. That
0: won't flow. No, no, I didn't say, say it's. No, no, here, I didn't say that it's. It, it focused specifically on the six days. I said it's a specific okay. account, meaning he's getting into the details of what happened, and on it, what it, day.
1: It says, on the day he created the heaven and the earth. Sure. But over here it says, in six days God created the heavens and the earth.
0: Okay, so now you're now, pointing out what okay. would be considered a—what what many people would say, well, that's a contradiction in the Bible, and I don't think it is. I, I think it's, perp- it's perfectly permissible. Without it being a contradiction or a fallacy, it's perfectly permissible in literature, including the literature of the Bible, for authors to point out specifics— and even embellish points that are not uh, causing a contradiction or not being something that's fallible. And what you mm-hmm. have here is a very discussed topic in the two creation accounts. It's often referred to, mm-hmm. and I don't think right. they, they discredit each other at all. And I think they should be taken literally. That's my opinion on it. And that's a fourteen-hour well, Bible study that we take could both do.
1: both of them. Brother, if you can take both of them literally, Mm -hmm. then later in this chapter it says that God, and that He brought them to Noah. I mean, brought them to Adam, excuse me, to name them. But over here, the animals were made on a different day. Sure. Okay. So how can God? So how can if it if it's if it's both if this is a literal story? Mm -hmm. Here's what here's what I'm getting at. Okay. And I'm not. You have thirty seconds, Clyde. I, I mean, this is something. This is something that people. And you're right. This is well discussed. But people tend to dismiss this. I realized when I was driving to church with my parents, when I was in the fifth grade reading this, that this was two different stories. Okay, It's pretty obvious, anybody reading it, that this is two different accounts. Anybody that had not been taught that it wasn't two different accounts would assume it is.
0: Sure, I think that's an interesting, so, and I appreciate my, my the, the call, Clyde. You, you
1: could not, hmm?
0: I I said I, we we're up against the clock. I appreciate the call. What what's your last okay. quick question here? We'll we'll answer it. If I'm you cannot, that
1: if you, I I, I I think we get into there's um we don't we we can be Christian and not have to accept that these things are literal histories.
0: That's a interesting topic that we are going to tackle right after this break. I really want to get back onto that because it's very important for our theology and our doctrine, what you just mentioned. The phone number to call in and have your questions answered is 863-682-1430. We'll see you after the break. Let's get back to more of Ask the Preacher, your weekly call-in show where you can have your Bible questions answered. It's brought to you by Believer's Fellowship Church. John Fried is your regular host. He's out. Sitting in is George Locke. Welcome back from the break, everybody. The phone number to call in and have your questions answered is 863-682-1430. Just before the break, we had a call from client It was a good uh, discussion. He was talking about, well, it's Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. They appear to be two different creation accounts. And so maybe this is allegorical and not supposed to be taken literally. And my contention to that, my explanation of that is it's not two different creation accounts. One, Genesis chapter 1, is an overview. Here's what happened on each day. And then immediately into Genesis chapter 2 verse 1, the author is beginning to hone in on a specific location and a specific event that occurred. And we know this because of chapter 2 verses 4 through 7 where it says these are the generations of the earth. Before there were plants, before it had rained, Then all of a sudden, God made man out of the dust of the earth. He's giving this brief history of what was just discussed in chapter 1. And then he hones in on the garden and how God made man and the task that was given to man. And it leads to the account of the fall of man. But the bigger question is, so when do we know in the Bible what to take literally what to take as allegory, what is just there for embellishment and flavor, and and what is supposed to be a core fact. And it's a really important thing to understand because if things that are supposed to be taken literally are just excused away as allegory, then you don't need a literal savior for your literal violation of God's law, which will literally give you your just rewards of eternal separation from God. If it's just allegorical, and I'm not saying this is what Clyde was saying, don't mistake me, I'm I'm saying generally speaking, uh, we have to know what's allegorical and what's not. And the Bible makes it pretty clear. Whenever there's supposed to be allegory, the Bible will say, you know, here's the example, this is what this symbol is, and here's the interpretation of that symbol. Or it's metaphoric language in the Psalms and the poetry where, you know, my lover's kiss is like honey. Okay, well, Obviously, we all recognize that as poetic language. But when you have other events, like in Genesis chapter 1, in chapter 2, there is no exegesic. Uh, We talked about this a little bit earlier. What is exegesic versus suggestive? Exegesic means it's plainly written there in the scripture. Suggestive is, well, this could be its interpretation. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there is no exegesic that this is allegorical. In fact, most scholars, you have brilliant scholars like Michael Heiser, who uh, he's probably the foremost scholar on Semitic languages. He says quite literally, Genesis was was written to be literal. Now, Michael Heiser doesn't necessarily agree with that view, but he agrees that in its language it's supposed to be literal. Um, And that brings us to kind of the next question that we have. The next question is, With all of the world's events going on today, how does it pertain to the book of Revelation? And you'll notice that I said the book of Revelation because it is not Revelations with an S. It is Revelation, singular. That's a little pet peeve of mine whenever you hear on TV or preachers say Revelations. It's not. It's one revelation. And a lot of people I've heard when, you know, doing Bible studies or talking about this, they get scared. Revelation is the scary book. It's all the bad apocalyptic things. Oh, it's terrible. And unfortunately, people view Revelation that way because they miss the point. We mentioned in the previous segment that there are different ways you can look at the Bible. And one of the ways that you could and should look at the Bible when you're reading it, and when you're studying it, is how does Jesus fit into all of this? Because Jesus himself said, all of the book is written about me. Uh, John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus literally is the Word. Um, And so when we look at Revelation, it's not just this unveiling of all of these, as some people would describe, future events, And, and the book of Revelation some people think are previous events that happened in 70 AD. But either way, whether you think it's past or present, the focus of the book is not All of the events the focus of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ it is the Messiah Yeshua HaMashiach and we know this because of the very first chapter in fact the very first couple of verses plainly say this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass and he sent it and signified it by his angel unto the servant John. It is a revelation of who Jesus really is. Let me give you some context for that. There are two prophets that were given prophetic end time messages that most people agree upon. You had Daniel, who was often referred to as the beloved prophet of the Old Testament, and you had John who I would argue was Jesus' best friend when Jesus walked the earth. And I, I make that argument because out of all of the disciples, it was John who was there at the crucifixion, and it's John who Jesus said, Hey, John, take care of my mother, Mom. John is now your, your son. And John is referred to as the beloved disciple. And so it's interesting that these two very loved prophets were given insider information, if you will, the, the end of, of things. And John specifically, he knew Jesus as this carpenter from Nazareth who performed miracles, who proclaimed to be not only God in the flesh, but a king of a kingdom that is not of this world. <clears throat> and John knew Jesus in what I'll call his his earthly form. And again, we can, you know, debate on, on the specifics of that. But John knew Jesus in the flesh. And now John is seeing his best friend, not as the lamb who was slain on the cross alone. No, no, the whole book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who descends to set up his kingdom on the earth forever and ever with eyes like fire. That's one of those analogies, one of those those symbols given to us. Uh, and so John is seeing this unveiling that Jesus isn't just the meek servant, as mentioned in in Hebrew. Uh, the, the, the The Jews in the first century had two beliefs of two messiahs: that there would be a Mashiach ben uh, Joseph, the suffering servant, and then the Mashiach ben David, the Messiah who's the king and and in the first century they thought these were two different messiahs and now John is seeing that no no it's it's one messiah who's serving two roles he was the suffering servant that's how John knew him while he was on the earth he died and when he resurrected now John is seeing him returning as the king who rules with an iron scepter as as we're told in scripture and so my encouragement is that when we look at the events of Revelation, some people think that they happened in 70 AD. Some people think they're happening now. Some people think they're going to happen in 100 years from now. Maybe. We can talk about it. We can bring up different reasons why all of them are possible uh, reasons. But the main focus is Jesus and who he is. The Revelation of Jesus Christ is the focus on Revelation. And you know, one more thing about Revelation that's pretty interesting is it's the only book in the Bible, the only book in the Bible, that does two things. One, it gives you a special promise. If you read the things in this book and keep them, you'll have a special blessing. Now, it doesn't say what that blessing is specifically uh, in chapters 2 and 3. There are some accommodations and some rewards that could be the special blessing. But the the second thing that's unique about the book of Revelation is that it is the only book where Jesus himself dictates the scriptures. Now, let me preface it with this. All of scripture is inspired, and the Holy Spirit impressed upon men to write what they wrote and to use the phrases and the words that they wrote. And all Scripture is good for reproof and doctrine and correction. And there are certain parts of the Torah, the law, that was dictated by, I would argue, Jesus, Yahweh, uh, to Moses. And so, excluding the Torah directly, which is the constitution of his kingdom— Revelation is is the only spot where Jesus isn't just quoted like in the Gospels. It's where he, Jesus, is dictating to these churches, here's what's good, here's what's bad, watch out for this, follow through on that, and you'll get a special award. And we kind of touched base a little bit uh, last week about this and how uh, in these last days we're going to be presented with two gods who can heal us. We could follow Asclepius, who is a false deity, uh, and he is modern medicine and he could be our healer, or we can trust in Yeshua, in Jesus, and his finished work on the cross to heal us. And that's mentioned in in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus is uh, referring to the white stone when he's writing his letter to the Church of Pergamum. So the phone number to call in is 863-682-1430. You can go to askthepreacher.com, ask your questions there. We will see you right after this break. Talk Radio 96.7 presents Ask the Preacher every Friday from 5 until 6, brought to you by Believers Fellowship Church. Sitting in for John Free today is George Locke. Welcome back from the break, all you beautiful people. Just a reminder to call in and have your questions answered. It's 863 682 1430. You can also go to askthepreacher.com. You can see the phone number there, in case you can't remember it. You can also ask your questions there, and we will do our best to answer those questions on the following week's program. Again, that's askthepreacher.com. Call in number is 863 682 1430. And we've had some pretty good discussions today. We talked, uh, we answered a question about preademic race or coademic. Uh, who was Cain's wife, how do we interpret the Bible, what parts are literal, what parts are allegorical. We talked about Revelation and uh, what the real focus of Revelation is beyond just the apocalyptic events that occur. And here's another question that we have is, uh, can I lose my salvation? And I will usually preface most of our conversations, most of my answers with this. I am not God Himself. Uh, I am a student like the rest of you, and our teacher is the Holy Spirit. And the Bible does commend us and encourage us to, uh, uh, as iron sharpens iron, challenge one another's intellects and and uh, work out our own salvations with fear and trembling, and and uh, to lay scripture upon scripture, precept upon precept. So there, there's rules that we should study, and the the great thing is that. God does not require us to have conformity of thought, only unity in spirit. So with that being said, I'm going to do my best to share my opinion, my biblical views on this topic, but I don't want you getting all offended. If you want to call in and ask your questions or give a comment, 863-682-1430. And so the question becomes, can I lose my salvation? You first have to determine, or maybe the better way to phrase it is, let's be precise and define salvation. What does it mean to be saved? It's a very broad term, and if you ask most people, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm saved, but saved from what? What is it that we're being saved from? So we got about five minutes, and I'm going to do my best to condense this into a a four-and-a-half-minute answer Salvation is described as five things. The word in the New Testament is sozo, and it covers a broad range of those five terms. It's safety, soundness, deliverance, healing, uh, and it's, it's uh, prosperity. And so it's, uh, you're, you're avoiding certain, let's say, causes, not causes, you're, when you're saved—I'm well, trying to be very precise— There is salvation that is already, but not yet. And that is a common theme in scripture. Am I sanctified? Yes, I'm already sanctified, but not yet. Because we still live in bodies that have a nature of sin. So when you're saved, your spirit, your soul is saved. The part of you that is eternal becomes one with God, according to 2 Corinthians. uh, We are born of the divine seed. We become his child. And so that part of us is one with him. Thus, it is already saved. But I am still trapped in this meat prison called the flesh, and this physical body loves to do its own will. And so I am already saved by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross to crucify the sin nature, pay the penalty, and now I receive his nature. So that part means I'm already saved. But I'm still waiting to receive a new body, a body that is like Christ's resurrected body, one that is flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. It's not a mortal body that is consumed with the sin nature and fulfilling its own lusts. So back to the question, now that we define that I am already saved and I'm saved from the penalty of violating God's law, can I lose that salvation? Well, I did not receive my salvation. I did not receive my new nature because of my good works. I received it because what Jesus did on the cross. He paid my sacrifice for violating God's law. So something that I did not earn through good works cannot be lost by bad works. Salvation is not an issue of, can I be holy enough? Because our sinful flesh will never be holy. That's why we must die this physical flesh has to perish away so that as scripture repeatedly reminds us the resurrection to come a new body that is free from the sin nature can be given to us and then we won't have the sin nature of sin we will our salvation will be complete if you will so you are already saved you cannot lose your salvation based on bad things but can i walk away can i reject his gift Well, the Bible says in the last day when people are standing before Jesus, they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things? And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So here's my encouragement to you. These people in Matthew, the story that Jesus is describing, they really thought they were serving God, but they weren't. They were workers of iniquity. They were violating his law. So my encouragement to you is I don't think you can lose your salvation by doing bad things, but you can certainly change your heart by living there. So our focus for the next week should be living in his law and seeking him. We'll see you next week on Ask the Preacher.